Welcome to another episode of SharkBites.net, where we delve into issues of tech leadership in the public sector. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to SharkBites.net. Here now is our host, Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute, now a division of Fusion Learning Partners. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of SharkBites.net. Today, we're going to listen in on a webinar that took place on January 24th, 2024. It was part of the Lunch and Learn webinar presented by the American Society of Public Administration Section on Science and Technology Interest Group. This is an organization that I've been involved with for many, many years. They do excellent work. Uh, ASPA is on the forefront of public administration. And of course, we're dealing with one of my favorite topics, artificial intelligence in state and local government. So in this episode, we feature once again, Dr. Stephanie Dietrich, who we interviewed a number of months ago. She's the chief data officer for the city of Tempe, Arizona. And we will also feature Nick Stowe, who is the state chief technology officer for the state of Washington. And I had the pleasure of kicking off this season's Lunch and Learn webinar as the moderator. Let me start with uh, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie Dietrich is the Chief Data Officer for the city of Tempe, Arizona. Now, Tempe, as you may know, was believed to be the first city uh, in Arizona, if not the country, to enact a policy involving ethical use of AI. And what's really remarkable, in a very short time, the city council approved the policy in June. So this takes into account transparency, fairness, accountability, but I don't want to get too far ahead of that. But Stephanie um, has been the chief data analytics officer. Uh, she's very much involved with GIS and data, which kind of sets the stage perfectly from the lens in which she sees things. And like me, she also has a hand in academia, having taught at Arizona State University for some uh, 15 years and have been associated with them. I'm also uh, happy to have Nick Stowe with us. Uh, Nick is the chief technology officer uh, for the state of Washington. Um, and he is was appointed at this position in March, 2023. And as the CTO, he is responsible for setting the technological vision for the state of Washington and driving forward transformational technology initiatives to improve the delivery services of its residents. But Nick is no stranger uh, to the state. Uh, he has had various roles as being the chief architect and many other roles um, having to do with Washington State. So that sets forth how we view things generally. So let me just start by saying that I think we could still say this as we begin 2024, that this truly is looked upon as a dawn of artificial intelligence. And what's really interesting is this article in The Economist was published in May 2015. Um, are we still in the dawn? Mm, in some ways, yes, but it didn't reach many of our population and including many of us perhaps even on this call, this webinar today, uh, until ChatGPT entered the stage early part of this year, almost a year ago. We knew AI was coming. We knew about AI and its different manifestations, but we didn't understand the power of ChatGPT. And that truly uh, caused us to start to move very, very quickly. 
As I've given a number of talks on this, many people believe there has been four industrial revolutions and we're still in the midst of the fourth. Some are much more specific saying the fourth really is all about AI. It's not just about big data and all that, uh, the internet of things. It's kind of like smart cities, internet of things, AI, all coming together along with big data to make it work. So regardless of labels, it really is a big deal. So there isn't a, a, a product that we don't buy today that advertises AI. Put aside chat GPT and generative AI. I mean, here we have a washing machine that is a whole new laundry that works with Alexa. It detects volume and weight of each unique laundry load. It has advanced AI sensors to identify fabric types and compares this information against more than 20,000 data points. It detects mixed load of t-shirts, pants, and then programs a wash cycle to use customized motions, temperatures, and times. So it just gives you a sense of where we're headed. And then we have things like the AI robot. Well, it's been around, but now suddenly it's even smarter. They have vacuum cleaners. We are talking to our remotes. We are talking to our computers, just exploding everywhere. AI is everywhere. So many people have said, well, is this a hype or reality? Recently, I was at a meeting and said, well, where does this fit into Gardner's hype cycle? And I'm thinking, this is no longer hype. In fact, a good illustration of this is the statistic right here. When you look at how long it took for selected online services to reach 1 million years, uh, users, let's look at Netflix in 1999. It took 3.5 years to reach 1 million users. Airbnb, 2.5 years. Facebook, 10 months. ChatGPT reached that 1 million users just in 2022, and it took five days. So that gives you a sense of the fascination and the interest that we're looking at today. So for our discussion today, what are state and local governments doing about this? You know, what are they thinking? And we're going to hear that from our panel in just a moment. But if I look back at what we concluded with 2023, over state, 10 states included AI regulations as part of larger consumer privacy laws that were passed or ongoing. Um, and even more states have proposed similar bills in various states of uh, the legislative process. Several states have uh, developed task forces to investigate AI. Other states have expressed concern about AI's impact on services like healthcare, insurance, and employment. So my organization, the Public Technology Institute, did a survey, one of the first in the country for cities and counties, and we published this in August 2023. I'm just going to share a couple of highlights. When we asked our CIOs of cities and counties across the country, almost 60% said they expect dramatic change. Only 42% basically said they didn't see much change, but nobody said there would be zero change. So everybody sees change, whether it's dramatic or a bit. When we asked them, and this is going to come up in our discussion, we talk about what are the issues uh, that concern you the most. Ethics was number one, followed by unauthorized release of personally identifiable information. So that gets into privacy issues. Wrong and harmful decisions, 4.8. Misinformation, disinformation, a close second. Then we have bias, redirection of valuable resources, and then copyright infringement, which is starting to grow in the body of law. When we ask them, where do they see AI playing the greatest role generally? 
cybersecurity management was clearly number one, followed by data analysis, and surprising citizen engagement came in at number three. And I think this as a result of the pandemic, where we really had to pivot um, and develop more citizen-facing services. And then, of course, we have predictive analytics and improved decision-making and the like. This slide deck can be made available to you, just like this recording uh, will be posted. We also asked, this is interesting, do you believe that you need training to better understand the implications of AI? Over 80% said yes. This is the highest uh, we've had of any of our surveys, both in overall response rate and in terms of a clear indicator. And they didn't, they wanted this not only for uh, their staff, but for themselves. Only a few said, now we don't need any training at this time. If I look at uh, NASIO jumping ahead on the state side, um, we just came from a meeting today uh, where NASIO was uh, presenting twice. We presented last week with NASIO. And for those not familiar, this is the National Association of Chief Information Chief for the States. And Look at number three. Number one was interesting because it was tied with digital government, and digital services, but never before in the top 10 on my surveys or NASIO surveys was artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotic process automation, all those things melded together to become number three in terms of top priorities for the coming year. So this um, is kind of interesting. And so I think I'm going to stop here and turn to our panel. And I'm going to ask Stephanie, if you don't mind beginning, because you and I did a podcast together. I believe it was only a number of months ago. It feels a lot sooner. Um, and we discussed uh, what you were able to accomplish in the city of Tempe. So tell us again, because many of the folks that are on this particular webinar may have missed that web uh, podcast. So let me start. Somewhere you felt a need, you felt that there should be some kind of codification for the city in terms of the appropriate use of AI. Could you just share, you know, a little bit about what what led you to that conclusion? Um, so probably two years ago or so, um, I started looking at the ideas of bias when it comes to automated decision making, machine learning. Um, even, you know, looking at remote sensing and how we leverage that data as we expend um, funding to provide services or improve, uh, you know, areas of our community. And there wasn't an ask for it. So it was one of those things that I started researching, I was thinking about it, I was taking notes and going like, this is what it's going to look like, I have time. Um, and I had the support of city leadership. And I said, you know, I'm doing this. And at some point I'll have something put together that I want to go to council and then chat GPT hit. And I did what everybody else did, which was take a pause, take a deep breath. And I went, Oh, and all I could think of was I missed the boat. I'm like, I could have had all this done by now. And here's something that everybody can get access to for free um, that's being painted by the news and all these tech publications as being the thing that's going to solve all, all problems for everybody. And so when I saw that, I saw the first article about it, and it probably was a week later where I kept seeing more. And I went to um, our CIO and our um, city manager and just said, 
you know, I'm, I'm now behind on what we were doing. And I, I'm like, I'm going to write the policy. And I gave them kind of an idea of what I was thinking. And I told them it was going to be fast. I'm like, I'd like to get it, you know, written in a couple weeks. And I wanted to go to council and I want your support. And they were very supportive. So I took all that and, and put it together with the idea of aligning Tempe values, which focus on equity and openness and, you know, um, collaboration. Um, and I took those values and tried to think about how would we apply that to AI? How would, how would a policy help align our use of AI with that? I think that I was slightly nervous that I was going to get some pushback just because of the fact that I emphasize so much that there have to be, you know, you have to be touching, people have to be touching it. And I almost envisioned AI coming into the city as if it's a new employee and you have to bring that new employee in, you have to give them training, you have to watch what they're doing. Maybe you pair them up with another employee or maybe they become partners and collaborate with another employee. And I kind of approached it with that mindset um, I put the policy together probably in a in a couple weeks. Um, I gave it to our council to review, um, other leadership to get feedback on, and I really didn't get a lot of pushback for change. Um, and I was very lucky and grateful to be able to get it through city council on our first try in a unanimous vote to to adopt it. Um, I've written a few other data related program policies for the city. And so one thing I thought was really important is not just having it be a policy, but at the same time, the policy resolution was approved. It also implemented and gave us approval to form an AI governance committee. And the policy actually outlines what the kind of responsibilities of that committee are and what authority the committee would have so that it wasn't just great, I have a policy, now I have to convince people well, I still have to convince people, but I don't have to convince people to, to let us make a steering committee, but more council is basically saying, yes, we approve this and now you need to go do this thing. And so, you know, the, the, the steering committee part lays out the fact that there has to be a review process. Any new AI has to go through that steering committee. There have to be annual checks, all those things that everybody's talking about. And that was part of what council adopted. And I think for me, that has made it a little bit easier to get people on board with joining and participating as we start to put those processes together. Cool. Let me go back uh, to my presentation. And I want to share uh, the uh, the element. And one thing that I found kind of interesting, I mean, this is a synopsis of what you've just been speaking about. This comes from, from uh, your policy. And uh, the scope I mean, this is not a terribly long one. I mean, there are city ones that I have read that are 30, 40 pages. Yours is very concise. This is the one that got me. This is the phrase, and I'm just fascinated, human-AI collaboration. We will encourage collaboration between humans and AI systems, leveraging the strengths of both to enhance decision-making processes and ensure that ultimate control remains with humans. This is really an advanced way of looking at things. What led you to this? This is fascinating to me. I I think what had me thinking this way is one, everybody's, and I mean, you showed what that art, that article was from 2015. Everybody's, you know, belief and fear that AI was going to come in and replace 
all the people. And then that would be the end of society as we knew it. And so part of that was in the back of my mind of how, how do I frame this so that people understand that this is supposed to help us and facilitate our work and not just take over someone? Because I think the second that we just are like, we're going to put AI in place and just let it do its thing and look at all this other stuff we can do. I think that's where disaster happens. Um, and so, I mean, I really tried to think about it is what would, you know, it's, it's more than bringing on a tool, right? Because there's some intelligence, hopefully, built into this. And so I thought about what is it, what would it mean to bring in something that can, in some level, think about things? And it really is that idea of bringing a new employee into the, into the environment. And you don't, hopefully, theoretically, don't bring a new employee in and just dump them off in a seat by themselves and go, no one's going to work with you. You're just going to be on yourself. You bring that person in and you build that relationship. Someone hopefully was working with them. They work with their teammates. They contribute to whatever is happening, but they are not normally an island unto themselves. There's there's other people involved. And so when I talk to people about what does it mean to bring AI in, I think about it as you're bringing on another staff resource. And that staff resource has to be paired with at least one person at minimum. And they're there to help that person. And that person needs to provide guidance because, you know, if the AI is producing something that doesn't align with what we're expecting, or you see it, you know, you hear about HR systems going through applications. And if you suddenly start to realize that uh, white sounding names seem to be the only thing coming out of it, you need to have someone who sees that, like, and then corrects the system, you know, or corrects the steers the ship, corrects that system as it goes, like you would do with a new employee. And so that idea of collaboration just means I don't think we should treat it like just another piece of software. We have to treat it like something that is thinking for itself, even if it's hopefully in the confines of the algorithm that was, you know, created for it. Oh, no, I love the imagery. I think it's brilliant. And I I have to think out where would we be in five years right now what you're suggesting is and and i agree with you we're mentoring uh ai at some point ai may be mentoring us because you know they keep learning about us 24 7 they're learning everything and we're a little slow to the gate so let me bring nick into this so nick you've heard this so far you've got some thoughts and tell us what's going on in the state of washington and your your area in particular and then we can open this up to a larger discussion sure thanks alan um I think the first thing that has been important for us within the state as we talk about artificial intelligence is to acknowledge that it's not new. And uh, I think that, you know, uh, John McCarthy coined the term in 1955. So I appreciate that you had your timeline and I really appreciate that you started with an article dated in 2015, because one of the things that we've seen that ChatGPT, the impact of uh, the release of a publicly accessible generative model uh, was a lot of fear around the future of artificial intelligence and the impact on our work. And so I do think one thing for us to remember is that uh, artificial intelligence is a really big bucket and things when it comes to a policy perspective, like definitions of what a predictive model versus a prescriptive model versus a generative model, like those are really important things and demystifying and breaking down the bucket of what is within artificial intelligence is important. And the example that I usually give is I've got artificial intelligence baked into so many uh, Excel macros. Nobody thinks those are exciting. 
so I do think it is important. Um, that's one thing uh, that's really been important for us in the state of Washington is defining and talking about artificial intelligence. The second thing, uh, I really appreciate that Stephanie brought up uh, a couple of values that, uh, that the state of Washington shares with Tempe and uh, specifically the one around collaboration. So one of the first things that we did in the state is established uh, what we call the state's uh, artificial intelligence com uh, community of practice, specifically for public sector. So we've got a lot of state agency representation. It's co-chaired by myself and the state's chief privacy officer, Katie Ruckel. Uh, we also have, I think this is probably one of the things I'm most proud of, is we have a significant amount of local government participation. We have local government on the steering committee and local government representatives in a subcommittee focused exclusively on local government. Because the technology uh, evolves so quickly, I liked the, the survey results you showed around 80% uh, to 20% in terms of the need of training. And these are from technologists who yes. acknowledge how fast this is moving. Yeah. And so, um, uh, and as a result, like having a community is important for us to be able to talk about these things and share information of what we're learning about how this generative model is trained or some good examples of transparency uh, in this model. Or, or to talk about, uh, like a lot of times we talk about cutting through the noise, because there's a lot of noise around artificial intelligence, uh, kind of as you mentioned in some of the articles. The second thing, uh, so once we kind of got the community together, I think another thing I appreciate is we focused uh, kind of like Stephanie on publishing something. So we published our initial guidelines on the safe and purposeful, or responsible and purposeful use of generative AI um, for the public sector. And one of the things that I think I really appreciate that first, as a community, we collaborated and produced those guidelines. And second, in the guidelines, again, specifically focused on generative AI, we called out a lot of um, your traditional principles that you've seen in maybe in the AI Act in EU or in uh, President Biden's executive order around fairness and inclusion and accountability uh, and responsibility, explainability of models. We also called out public purpose and social benefit. Uh, which we, uh, we really felt was something important for us to call out in our guidelines around making sure that just like any other piece of technology, what we do with this needs to be focused on better serving um, the residents of the state of Washington. And then the last thing, um, you know, I could talk about this forever, but uh, one of the other things that I think was really good that we focused on in our guidelines is not just saying here are all the things you shouldn't do, but also identifying here are some areas. This I think we published these in the late summer of last year, but here are some areas where we've seen opportunity for generative AI to augment the work or to help functions of government that we have within state or local governments. Things like drafting documents or aiding and coding, generating uh, images to explain complex concepts. And so I think that, again, bringing the community together, focus on getting some initial guidelines out that talk about how to manage risks, some principles, and some use cases are, are a couple of things that I'm really uh, near-term kind of recent activities that I'm really proud of that we've undertaken in the state. Excellent. So let's uh, talk about AI more in general terms, in terms of applications. So I, but before we do that, We've talked about guidelines versus policy, and I've had this discussion with a number of people. You know, what is what in your mind? And let me just stay with you because I, I know what Stephanie's answer is going to be, and then we're going to ask her next. Yeah, you know, what do you see the difference between a guideline and a policy? And does it matter? Sure, guideline is you should, policy is you must, uh -huh. and uh, and I think. Uh, kind of to Stephanie's point earlier, a lot of times guidelines, in addition to you should um, serve as a vehicle for education, 
or um, as a vehicle for awareness. Policies, because they are much more detail policies and standards, which I will stick under the policy stack, uh, are oftentimes take a, a lot longer to get through and develop. They have more dependencies on your existing processes. There's a lot more required to maintain um, a good, healthy policy and all of the kind of compliance associated with a policy. And so oftentimes a guideline can be a good stepping stone into, hey, here is something um, that we know is important, that's relevant. Here are some best practices so that you, like as an example, we've seen uh, many entities within the state of Washington use our guidelines to then uh, identify or to attribute in, in a policy that they've developed. Uh, the other thing that I would mention in terms of policies is policies, uh, especially in this case, um, there is a policy, there is a stack of dependent policies, meaning a policy on artificial intelligence also is related to your policy on IT procurement and your policy on IT security and your policy on privacy. And so that's the other thing that I think uh, in guidelines, you can oftentimes refer to these other disciplines when you're drafting a policy, again, depending on the structure and the operating model you have, you need to be able to reuse as much as possible the existing policy and the governance and oversight processes that you have for technology and not go off and create something brand new. And a lot of times that takes time and uh, is complex. And so it's kind of how I view the relationship between No, that's perfect. All right, Stephanie, the last time we talked, we had this very discussion and, and you chose for the reasons that I think I totally get is policy, but then you were working on guidelines. So where are you in the process? So, yeah, Nick, everything you said, 100% kind of what I was I was thinking as well. And um, it's probably not says a lot about me, but for me, the idea of policy first was because of the fact it's a you shall. And with our open data policy, like seven years ago, um, I started with an open data policy before we started doing anything related to that type of work. And it was meant to be open internal and open external. And it's really effective when you have people that push back to provide the policy and say, this went through council, they've adopted it, let's talk through all the things, identify what your concerns are, and is there something in the policy that would be triggered that would allow you to not do what it is that we're asking you to do? And so I think policy, not just me waving it in my air going policy, um, which I do with the open data policy sometimes, um, not just, hey, we have a policy, but also you don't think you have to do this. I'm saying you do. The policy lays out the principles. Let's look at what the concerns are. And if there's anything in the policy that says that you don't have to align with it. Our policy has no nothing in there that would say necessarily in the policy that you don't have to align with what we're doing. So it's pretty, it's pretty helpful for that. Um, for guidelines, we do have some basic guidelines put together. Um, I'm going to be putting that through our steering committee as the first thing that gets kind of that final review. Um, I do have people that think that we did it backward, but right now we're monitoring who's using generative AI in the city and I'm talking to them. And so like we have a touch point to have an idea of what they're doing. But yeah, the I realized I was a little bit, a little bit backwards for a lot of people since they have access to generative AI now. So I think we're close to having something that I'll be happy to, to share with share out to the city um, once the steering committee gives its blessing. 
I will say that is one thing that we learned in, and our guidelines, the first word is interim, because as soon as we published them and we started talking about use cases and like putting our use cases up against the guidelines, there were examples of like, wait a minute, we like, there were a lot of procurement related things around procurement and oversight of uh, generative models that are embedded in a product. And we were like, okay, well, how does that fit up against our guidelines? So right, that's kind of what we're looking at is collecting a lot of feedback. And But yeah, I, I, same process, I think, for both is you publish something and then get a bunch of feedback about use cases and how they fit within the policy or the guidelines you've produced. And you got to have like your, your generative AI guidelines or policy can't sit there for a year and a half. Yeah, things move too fast and you learn too much. And there are too many use cases that weren't contemplated when you first envision it. So I think that that principle applies to either kind of guidance. Mm -hmm. So let's move on a little bit and, and talk about what excites you the most in terms of actual applications that you are excited by, maybe the top three in your mind, and what are the ones that worry you the most? Um, because there are some things to be concerned about. Some of them are been expressed in some of the surveys, but let's start with the positive. What are the ones that excite you the most about what this these technologies can do? Nick, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, so like Stephanie mentioned, uh, in terms of values, uh, the state of Washington also has a, a very big value focused on equity and equitable service and serving those who have been underserved or, mar or marginalized communities. So translation is one area that I'm really excited about. Um, I think when you think about text-to-text -text use cases, translation is one area that... Um, uh, is very exciting. Another one, again, this is not a, that that would fit more within the generative bucket. Uh, another one that I would focus on still staying in the space of equity is um, more a more traditional machine learning approach, but that's looking at um, the equity of investment. And so uh, a good example is um, we have one city in the state of Washington that's looking at the equity of the investment in green space, literally green space, like trees and parks and how that's distributed across their city and how they can use that to drive decisions on where they invest, um, where they invest in, um, in that kind of uh, resource. And then the last area, there are a ton. I would say I'm really interested and passionate about areas of the intersection of uh, artificial intelligence and then um, environmental sustainability. And so uh, we have a couple of examples of that in the state of Washington. One focused on wildfire prevention, uh, detection, and response. And then another that is focused on uh, identifying patterns in, in, in the health of ecological systems. And so sometimes it may be looking at massive amounts of images uh, categorized on or video taken over years and years on uh, the health of seagrass and different environment, different like kind of components of our ecological environment as that's a really big um, passion and kind of part of our culture in the state of Washington. Uh, giving me that, asking me to come up with the top three is kind of cheating, Alan, because I have got a whole portfolio. Oh, keep going. But Let's those stay are, at five. Well, okay, those are the big you know, okay. that, that, yeah. I, that, you know, I, I do want to be able to get to questions because I'm sure there are yeah. some. So, um, but those are the ones, again, equity and environmental sustainability. And then just uh, in the area of, you know, text to text or just making language plainer. There are also examples of just translating, like I'll give you an example. It's not super exciting for some people, but making our technology policies more explainable to the to our constituents or to people within state government. 
it turns out that our it's not it's not always the easiest to navigate a stack of technology policies to figure out what you can or can't do. Um, so just making text more explainable and consumable to our residents or um, or to our state employees uh, is an area we're really excited about. Cool. All right, Stephanie, what are the three top areas that excite you the most in terms of AI applications? Well, that last one that Nick just mentioned, I think is really important in part just selfishly because I, when I write things for leadership or for council, I constantly hear, I think it's simple and I get, you need to simplify it more. And, you know, that takes a lot of time. And so the idea that for every person who has to write something to send to council, who will get that feedback of, you know, if we develop the skill sets for people that they'll be able to start to use that to really streamline that process. And instead of having to write five, you know, versions of it, you maybe write one and then use generative AI to simplify, to simplify that down. And I think that could just be really helpful. But the big area where I think this could be useful is looking more at analytics when you start talking about um, like open-ended questions, text prompts, things like that, and combining that with things like demographic data. Um, our city is very enthusiastic about doing surveys and they use the results um, every time, but they ask open-ended questions. And I, you know, I've been looking at bringing something in to, to address that and do that, that analysis for a while. And now we're finally at the point to where the tools are more easily available. Um, you know, ChatGPT can um, help uh, perform analytics and, you know, start to pull insights out of content that you place in there. Um, the tools that Microsoft has uh, provides um, a lot of functionality there. And I, I'm, it's probably been six years that I've been asking for something like that. So I'm, I'm all in when it, when it comes to that. And the other part is also machine learning, um, you know, speaking to environment, sustainability, we have uh, an urban forest program and, and part of that weirdly is engineered shade. And, you know, in, improvements in geo AI are making it easier for us to get more refined in how we can use machine learning to identify something that would be engineered shade and not just like shade that drops off a building. And so I think that that's exciting. We made a first pass at it and it did a pretty good job, but you know, as AI systems continue to evolve, I'm hoping that we can be more hands-off in the initial work and it can it can speed that up a lot faster. But the the natural language processing and kind of helping people write things that are more understandable, I think for me are two really big ones. Yeah. I find it for myself, you know, just doing outlines is so helpful. You know, that to me is a low hanging fruit. Give me an outline on this. And, you know, whether I agree with it doesn't matter. It gets my my mind to start thinking in an organized manner. And then, of course, there are a number of academics on this uh, webinar. And one of the great fears we have on the negative, which we're going to get to, is what is what does this mean for our students? You know, I can tell you the faculty meetings, and I don't know, Stephanie, if you've been involved with some of those discussions, it's like, this is the end of academia and all this horrible stuff. And I got to tell you, as I start the new semester, I have an AI policy for my class, and I say, use it. And I encourage it. I think it's great. Just don't submit it for you. So, you know, I have my guidelines, use it for brainstorming, use it for getting better ideas, crystallizing your ideas, 
but the work has to be yours. And otherwise that would be plagiarism. Anyway, um, Nick, tell us what are the things that you worry about? Uh, I'm going to stay. On? Yeah. I'm going to stay on equity. Okay. Uh, because I look at broadband, we are still trying to get broadband out to, um, to communities that haven't had access to the internet. And so, um, so I think if we already knew we had an equity problem when it comes to connectivity, education, and device access, then equity of access to tools like this that are very powerful for processing information um, is one thing that I am very concerned about. Um, the second thing is bias. So uh, the, trans the translation use case I came up with earlier, um, a lot of times many of the language models that we may have interacted with are good at English to English translation because of the data that they're trained on. And uh, and so not having a representative data sets in a lot of these models means that um, there is bias built into the models and um, we there's bias in everything that we do in the way that we collect data and uh, there's historical bias and we won't go into the rabbit hole of the importance of bias, but, um, uh, but that's one other thing that I'm concerned about. The third one would probably be transparency especially as a lot of these models get complex. You brought up copyright um, issues early on. Um, I think is a good example of the challenge you have when you have these really massive complex models that are trained on very, very large data sets. Lineage and transparency uh, become important. One of the things that I appreciate that Stephanie brought up earlier is the kind of focus on automated decisions. So in the state of Washington, we've had a, a task force, a work group that looked at automated decision systems. Um, and then we recently released some procurement guidance focused on controls for automated decision systems, as well as a report. And so um, those are those are areas where um, uh, without having some really good, clear controls or transparency uh, or ways to mitigate that, you can, uh, that's another area where I'm, you know, a lot of large models that are developed by a private entity, um, they do have examples of transparency, uh, but I think that's another area that I'm concerned about, which I've also seen a, a lot of focus on in um, Europe in terms of what they're working on the the, the AI Act. So those are probably cool. the, the big All thing. right. Stephanie, we're getting a lot of questions and I want to get to them, but I am going to ask you the same. What worries you the most about AI from your perspective? Um, I think Nick hit on obviously bias is, you know, I think it's one of the first things that we have in our policy and it causes me great concern, especially as you start talking about public safety and criminal justice, that just gives me a tick because it's like the level of focus I think you need in oversight and transparency with that is massive. And I think that that gives people pause when it's like, eh, should we be doing that? Transparency on my side too is that public facing component and what does it mean to have meaningful input to this in a way that doesn't slow adoption of new technology down. Because, you know, we don't want to be the roadblock where it's going to take a year to get a decision because we've come up with such a complicated process that no one can do anything. And so one of the things that we're looking at is creating, I think San Diego has something like this, of a um, public like steering committee, public, you know, governance committee for AI, um, similar to what we have with our planning groups that you know, depending on what it is, would kind of have the same review process as we do internally and provide that type of feedback. So there is that public facing awareness and we're not just talking to ourselves, you know, in a vacuum. The other thing that I have concerns about is all the audio and image generation and 
at the city, that is one thing for me that will be a no-no is any generative AI audio. I think I, I think they just, I heard a story yesterday, something about the White House and a message that came out that, you know, used, uh, generated Biden's voice. That to me is just very scary. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that there's no way to figure that out. So for the city at this point in time, that's just a, you know, that's going to be totally prohibited. So a number of the questions, thanks, Stephanie, and both of you, a number of questions have come up uh, relate to citizens. And, and in a way, that's no surprise, because that's ultimately our goal to serve citizens. And it just so happens that this is a major um, uh, area that has been expressed in our surveys, looking at 2024 and, and beyond, both at NASIO and the PTI surveys. Citizen engagement is way up there citizen trust is way down. So um, how do we how do we inform the public? And there's many pieces to this in the remaining time, but I think this is where we're going to probably wind up for today's discussion. I can see a part two coming, but in terms of how do we tell people when we're using it? How do we educate the public? Perhaps is that a role for government to kind of let them know what they should be in a more of a consumer alert kind of thing? Um, how are we using these tools for better citizen engagement? There's a lot there. That that could be, a, a, each one of those could be a webinar unto itself. Nick, thoughts? Sure, I can start. Um, this is this is actually, I love this question because it's something uh, we had our, um, our AI community practice I mentioned uh, meets monthly. And this was the top, one of the topics that we brought up is our big priority focus is uh, is resident engagement on these issues. Now, the state of Washington, we've got eight, 8 million residents, uh, anywhere between 100 to 200 agencies, boards, and commissions. So a common approach, and then all of our local government entities that are part of our community practice. So a common approach um, would be difficult. So what we're looking at is uh, what are some of the best practices? So kind of like you mentioned, uh, I think Stephanie mentioned, I think it's uh, San Jose or San Diego has mm -hmm. their, uh, yeah, so uh, the we looked at one example, I think the city of Seattle in the development of their policy had uh, an advisory group that was met, that was representative of residents. Uh, we are looking to partner, the state of Washington have, has a state agency called the Office of Equity that focuses on equity and engagement with the community. And so that's one um, entity that we're focused on partnering with this year. The other thing that I would look at is our state, I mentioned I co-chair our community practice with our um, State Chief Privacy Officer Katie Ruckel. And one thing that Katie does is every, uh, a lot of the content that she produces is publicly accessible. And so as an example, she had a webinar with me and our Chief State Chief Data Officer uh, and herself when the guidelines came out to talk about the guidelines and the impact that it has and just to provide a resource for um, residents. I do think we need to, um, that's something we need to do more of. And I, I think of there, there are best practices and then there are also focused areas as an example, in the state of Washington, um, we have a law focused on facial recognition. And so if any state agency or entity wants to pursue the use of facial recognition technology, um, uh, which could have a benefit for helping people identify themselves or to fight fraud, there is a process that includes very specific requirements for community engagement and publicly accessible reports on the technology before it's deployed. And so I think in addition to best practices and guidelines, looking at um, what is what is uh, what does resident engagement look like in these use cases or in these specific areas that may have varying levels of risk is another important way for us to look at it. But like I said, there's a lot more that I think we can do and will do in the state. And I appreciate the question. Great, 
Stephanie, same question. I think that idea of use cases to helping define what engagement looks like is really important because again, public safety, criminal justice, I don't see any situation where there shouldn't be an increased level of transparency and community engagement around the city, even considering something like that, let alone adopting it. And one of the things that I think is going to require kind of a change, at least in Tempe, for how the city thinks about what it's sharing with the community is a lot of times it's you do these events, you go out and you talk to people and they can provide feedback, which is great. But when you start talking about equity, I, I think we can all acknowledge that there are specific populations that are comfortable going to public meetings or have the ability to go to these public meetings. You know, you have parents with kids that they can't leave at home to go to a meeting at 6 p.m. or in the middle of the day. And, you know, part of it is this, this has the potential to touch everybody. And so on the engagement front, I think this, this really emphasizes the importance of providing approaches that are accessible to everybody so we can have that broader perspective and we're not just touching on the small group that's comfortable talking to the city that shows up for everything because their needs and concerns are going to be vastly different than people who are either unable due to whatever circumstances or who aren't comfortable in talking to the city. And so that's one of the things um, we've been talking about internally with our um, neighborhood services, people who are do all that engagement on what could that look like? Um, we have something called equity in action, which tries to focus on, um, you know, how do you center these types of projects in equity so that you're meeting people where they are and trying to figure out how to do that with something technology related, I think is going to be interesting because I don't think it can be the same. The other element is that ongoing communication so that people realize there's a, hopefully you build that level of trust because it's not a, we evaluate it once, we're done, we're moving on to the next thing. It's we've done it and there's gonna be those processes in place that have to happen you know, at, min at minimum annually where we're going back to look at what's, what's happening to make sure that it's still aligning with what you know our, our principles and values are and that we see that the decisions are making sense if we're talking about automated decision-making. And I think it would be, I think it's valuable to let people know and remind them we're doing this, we're reminding you we're doing this, and this is what we're doing to make sure that it is safe for you. And I I think that, you know, in the idea of building trust, I'm hoping that that will help people be more, you know, trust more that we are going to be doing things that are in their best interest and that we're going to be trying to avoid harm as much as we can. But that meeting people where they are and trying to get to those communities that are often not engaged, I think for me is the big community engagement issue well, that I have in the back of my head. Yeah, this is the word explainability that you see so often in guidelines and policies, and that has different meaning. One is to explain it to ourselves or those who operate systems, but I think there also is uh, uh, an obligation perhaps uh, to, to our citizens. And case in point, we are so often finding ourselves turning to chatbots uh, and text bots, and I can just anticipate where that's headed in terms of augmenting current staff loads, asking those routine questions. I know that there were some folks that were developing some fascinating models of human type 
uh, folks, but they intentionally um, made them facially look exactly like a human, but they made the head kind of transparent in a way that you could tell this was not a real human. In other words, do we have a responsibility to have a disclaimer that much of this information uh, has been generated by AI? Um, do we have, are we trying too hard with texting to kind of make us look like humans when in fact that could actually frustrate somebody when they realize that that's not a human that they're interacting with? What responsibility? I mean, this is a whole new territory for many of us. You know, how much do we let people know without alarming them, which is to your point, Stephanie, and 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 also at the same time reassure them? Quick thoughts on that. I I think one hundred percent people should know when they're interacting with AI or when AI is being used for something that could impact them. Um, I I think that you know, avoiding the shock when someone realizes it, um, especially if you start looking at things like I keep harping on HR and we're not even looking at doing this with our HR system. But even if someone's applying somewhere where you have AI doing some sort of a, a first pass and then they don't get selected for an interview, I just think that that opens that opportunity for if they suddenly find out AI is involved for people to feel like they've been tricked or we're not being honest with them or being, you know, feeling like we're not in, you know, we don't really care about those first passive applications or with chat, I get irritated. Once I realize I'm dealing with AI and I didn't know it, it drives me crazy. I I think it would, I think it would remove some of that frustration if we were all just up front and said, you're interacting with AI, AI was involved in this, or this was generated. By AI. And I think most guidelines that are out there right now that relate to any sort of government, um, I'll mention that you have to basically cite when you're using something from generative AI. And I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. I had a, uh, a situation where I was talking with an airline where I found myself at an airport. My choice was standing on a line that could be forever without any satisfaction or going to the 800 number. I knew it was a chat, and it identified itself pretty much as I am. Yes, I'm automated, but I I can help you. But if you prefer a human after you know whatever, and I just felt so comfortable, you know, because the voices have gotten much better. You know, it's not that broken language anymore. It's really smooth. They could have fooled me, and and I could have been happy, but I felt more confident understanding what was going on. Nick. Yeah, we talked. Um, so we talked earlier about the shared values that Tempe and the state of Washington have around equity and collaboration. The other one that we didn't talk about, but we talked about a lot today is trust. Uh, and so I think, um, so we have the same kind of in our guidelines, we have the same attribution you need, to, if you're generating something, you need to attribute it. But I, I, I do think that trust, like even even having a notification to somebody that they're working, um, they, this is an, you are working with an AI augmented chatbot. There are many of our residents who may not have even trusted government services beforehand, regardless of the format. And one of that, that's one of the reasons why I think we have a lot of these transparent principles in government, because a lot of times you don't have another option. You don't go get, you, you know, the, the you don't, oftentimes our residents don't, have another option to get a service. And so trust is a really important value for us as government entities. And so that means that we have to be oftentimes overly transparent uh, or maybe appropriately transparent is a better way of saying it. Yeah. And so I think um, 
Yeah, so the other thing I really think of in terms of this case is, well, yes, we need to be clear about when something has been augmented or generated with AI and everyone needs another option. And so I like the example you just gave around, hey, I'm AI generated and I would love to try to help you with your problem. And if you're not comfortable, here's a way to talk to a person. And the goal is the goal in that case is to augment the workforce we have to reduce the time it takes for somebody to get something they need and to give them options as opposed to replacing an entire function. And I think uh, I think that's really important for us to remember. Yeah. So I have a question here where someone's asking, uh, can you comment on how the use of AI may affect technology staff attitudes? Do you see any problems on the horizon? And I suspect underlying that question might be, are they fearful of their jobs or their responsibilities? Could be one. Uh, or some of their tasks being replaced? Or should they be using it? I mean, I can see many pieces to that. Um, how are... How are the staffs that you are involved with either embracing it? Is anybody fighting it? Is anybody resisting? Or is there, or are they experimenting? Uh, yeah, for, for us, I think it's like any change. I think it's uh, similar to when cloud technology became a lot more prevalent. Um, it's we see you see some who are early adopters, some who are interested and think the technology is relevant and some who are resistors. And uh, I think having all of those perspectives are good. The resistors oftentimes give us the areas where we need to look in that are concerns or we need controls or need more training or need to focus on something. The early adopters find the use cases or the areas and our business priorities where it can help us. Uh, and so I, again, I think of it just like looking at any other organizational change management as a discipline is very important. And so looking at the patterns of change, I think it follows somewhat similarly. We do have people who are early adopters and we have people who are, I don't know, I'd say resistors, but who are um, a little bit more um, wary of the technology and its benefits or risks. And we do we do a lot of times, uh, at least in our community of practice, are focusing on talking about task augmentation, not staff replacement. And I think that's something uh, to be really mindful of because I don't, for, you know, working in the public sector for as long as I have, there is always more work than we have resources and staff to do. So figuring out the ways in our work or the tasks that we can augment um, has been, a, I think, a good mindset for us to approach it with. Good. Stephanie, uh, any uh, any concerns voiced by staff that you detected? Um, not, not really. I think where I see some, um, I don't know if hesitancy is the right word, but maybe a lack of buy-in on, you know, a government entity being willing to adopt something that is, even though it's not new, again, you had an article for, from 2015, but something that feels new, their belief that a, that government's going to be willing to do that, that like, we're going to allow that to happen. So it, the, I think I have two people from IT on the steering committee and talking about encouraging people at minimum to start looking at chat GPT and how they might be able to use it. And they just don't, they're like, people aren't going to be interested in that. Or if we're talking about automated decision-making, there's conversations about, um, you know, uh, or criminal justice redaction software and, you know, talking about the goal would be to get something done quickly and not have it be like a two year process. And, you know, they really struggle with the idea that, there's going to be a new solution that they could put in place that wouldn't require what sometimes takes two years. And so I think it's a matter of needing to have something that we could show as a success to demonstrate 
you know, the city is willing to do this. There are things that could be really beneficial and having this process in place to review these things and really understand what's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to take us two years so that, you know, something that we adopted that was new and innovative by the time we get it is going to be surpassed by something else. And so, so I, I think that's been challenging. Uh, and I think the backdrop to that question and many people's fears is that, you know, books, book titles sell and magazines sell. And the backdrop to all this is, you know, the end of work as we know it, rise of the machines. I mean, you look at some of the titles and it's frightening. We've had people say, you know, 50% of jobs will be replaced by uh, artificial intelligence and the like. Um, what you have presented is a far more pragmatic, practical approach. I get it. I'm with you both. But I can see where the public and possibly our workers are feeling a little different. Well, we're going to end it there. And I want to thank you for staying with us. This is a longer podcast than normal, but we thought the conversation was quite informative and we got a lot of positive reaction when we went live. So until next time, as I always say, please be safe, both digitally and personally. You've been listening to another episode of sharkbites.net. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to sharkbites.net. And if you or someone you know has a story to tell, please let us know.